Hello, everybody, and welcome to the lesson seven on the BSF study of the Minor Prophets. October thirty-first is Reformation Day. That was、uh, this yesterday, actually, when Luther nailed the ninety-nine theses or objections to the distortions that had become ingrained in the Roman Catholic Church, calling for rampant and uncompromised reform and renewal within the Church. You know the Catholic Church was steeped in distortion and fracture of God's truth, and you know what that does when we have distortion and fractures. That it obscures the truth of God's word and its transformative power, then kind of being、uh, fleshed out and lived out in our lives. Priests took advantage of being the arbiters of the scriptures back then. They became intermediaries of what the Bible said. In an obscure language of Latin that most people couldn't understand, so to a populace that couldn't read Latin, they were going in doing a lot of religious practices without full understanding of what they were, they were doing. They held the scriptures so sacred that the scriptures were basically held out of view and out of focus to the populace. And so, while the Bible became obscured due to the lack of zeal for education, and the priests invented. Thereby, powers to sell,、uh, kind of、uh, favors or what they called indulgences, it became a, a rampant corruption, right? A potential to sell spiritual pardons for sins at a monetary price. This was obviously just the tip of the perversity that was brought in by a dead religious system where the powerful held the vulnerable hostage. So we have. The same usual suspects: wealth, power, prestige. Those things which John writes about in First John two sixteen as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, which he says does not come from the Father but from the world, and are things the world runs after, causing distortion among, distortion among God's people. You know these things cause a distortion to our purpose and view of ourselves. The correct view of ourselves that we've been created in God's image for to know God and to know His heart, to enjoy God forever and to glorify Him. So imagine how God must feel when sin is darkening people's view, or when there is danger to darkening that view through idolatry. So what's happening when sin's disordering work invades and corrupts the workings of normal society is what we see in our lessons throughout the Kings. We can see how easily it invades the institution, not only back then, but also of the church today. Today, we're going to see this distortion at the center of the good King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat tried to reinforce ways to make people aware of distortion by creating a civilian program of learning around God's word. We read about this in chapter nineteen. He instituted an education program under qualified men, and then later also expanded this program to set up judges among the priests, Levites, and heads of the Israelite families. That's nineteen verse eight. And then he appointed Amariah the chief priest, and he became the head judge in spiritual matters. While Zebadiah, son of Ishmael, was the judge in administrative governance issues、uh, under the king. That's verse eleven. So while Jehoshaphat was zealous for his people to follow God's word, 
he himself personally fell into critical errors, and that's going to play a central role in our study today. He started to accrue much wealth and honor from the surrounding kingdoms, paying homage to him. And during which he, you know, at this period, he ended up uh, deciding to marry his firstborn son to Ahab's daughter, the consequences of which we're going to be reading about next time. But for now, just uh, be reminded that Ahab and Jezebel were steeped in pagan idolatry and lived in rebellion against God. I mean, flat out, outright rebellion. Jehoshaphat and Ahab, you know, became in-laws through that marriage and, and quickly Jehoshaphat fell into trouble, falling into the schemes that Ahab conjured up, uh, one of which the big one was to attack the king of Aram to regain Ramoth Gilead, his lost territory. And he fails to recognize many hints along the way of Ahab's plan, which was not of God. Ahab had stacked the courts of his council with false prophets who had flattering lips. And when they lose the battle later on, we find that this loss in the battle with Ahab, who's gotten him into this trouble, uh, signals to the countries around him that he may be vulnerable for attack. So the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Meoites act on Judah's apparent vulnerability and attack Jehoshaphat nearby Jerusalem. And even as God rescues Jehoshaphat and Judah miraculously from the vast army approaching to attack them, Jehoshaphat later, even after experiencing God's deliverance and power, enters into a partnership again with Ahaziah which is Ahab's son, wicked son, who succeed him in Israel in order to partner in building out a fleet of vessels for trading gold. And you remember, uh, they were specifically ordered not to accumulate much gold or silver. So how have you noticed um, in relation to what we have been studying, clear spiritual compromises and how they create vulnerabilities and weaknesses in your life Entering into the orbit of ungodly people and falling under their influence does rub off on us, and we are warned about its consequences this week. So let's first look at our learning framework. So the doctrine for this week is prayer. God hears us when we express our utter dependence and reliance on Him. God hears us when we express our dependence on Him and our reliance, our need for Him. The attribute of God that we look at is Savior, realizing that you know no other religion, no other uh, philosophy can claim to know a God who has such a beautiful name as we do, Savior, Deliverer. No other God has demonstrated such a love. And then the big idea is seeking God when it's most tempting to go at it alone or go at it to solve by ourself. The aim for this lesson is to cause the um, audience to learn that true security and peace is found only in God. So the, there are two divisions that we're going to look at. The first uh, is to seeking God in all circumstances in a sinful world. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 17 through 19, where we look at how Chapter 17 uh, emphasizes this theme of strength from knowing God's plan. Chapter 18 emphasizes this theme of discerning false teachings by seeking God's counsel. And then chapter 19, applying God's word. 
And the principle to take away from here is that true security is found in seeking and submitting to God's word, submitting to God's will. And then the second division will be seeking God in a hostile world. 2 Corinthians 20 verse 1 through 21 verse 3. And so the first uh, part of that is to learn to rely on God for help. That's the first portion, chapter 20, 1 to 13. And then we can trust in God's power. That's verses 14 to 19. And finally, to respond in worship. That's verses 20 into chapter 21, verse 3, when uh, Jehoshaphat experiences uh, just a merciful and gracious rescue. So the principle to take away is God's name and his heart are wrapped up in rescuing us from our most impossible situations in the Messiah, Yeshua, his son. So we know that God hates idolatry. Why does God hate idolatry, which is a running theme for the last few weeks, and the prophets come back time and again to emphasize this uh, very evil sin uh, that's permeating not only the king, but the land in general. Godly people imitate, when they believe in idolatry, the lifestyles of the pagans around them, and resist repentance. So why is idolatry such an important theme? What does idolatry have to do with us today? And then, how do our modern idols compromise our love for God and His ways? So, I'd like you to keep these questions in mind. Why is idolatry such an important theme that runs throughout our lessons in the prophets? Well, let me just go through a brief historical outline of what's happening in these times. We're looking at the period roughly uh, between 1000 BC and 900 BC. The key trends going on during these times, uh, from the time of Moses, which was much before, up into the times that we're look, looking at right now through the prophets, is that you know most of the kings at this time were lords over small city-states. We're not talking about huge territorial ground. We're talking about cities that may have had extended uh, kind of spokes of villages and uh, townships, but uh, mostly uh, emphasizing agricultural agricultural enterprises, see, improved uh, agricultural practices uh, and capabilities increased the supply of food and with the surplus, uh, which resulted in trade, storage, distribution. We saw some of this in the earlier empires in Egypt. Food as security was a very important issue, which they leveraged in their trade with other nations by which they could gain increasing wealth. And through this trade and ongoing trade with more and more nations, and as populations are growing throughout the world, trade highways are uh, expanding and reaching out into more distant areas. However, uh, we are looking at Israel, which is kind of center to global affairs right now. Food surplus, going back to that issue of having enough food now, gives rise to population growth. They're able to feed more mouths. And this is important uh, because that also enhances business activity within the region, the economic growth uh, potential. Growth in trade increases and um, increased importance of trade routes uh, further expand those routes, uh, solidifying them into the Sinai, going into Egypt, and the Fertile Crescent into Mesopotamia which we know will be an important link into towns like Damascus, Nineveh, and the Assyrian and Babylonian empires. 
So what we have constantly coming back is this um, interaction with the, and the potential for godly witness to the people north of Israel, which is Tyre and Sidon, which is uh, Asia Minor, then into Damascus, which we hear about through the interaction with King of Aram, and then also uh, into Nineveh, which is the gateway into the Neo-Babylonian Empire coming up. So these empires are growing and they're coming into their own very quickly. And this is a preparation ground, the kind of pre-stage before uh, the expansion of these uh, kingdom city-states into uh, larger empires coming down in a few hundred years. Also happening at this time is specialization of trades, metallurgy, and the expansion of military, military prowess. We see military buildup happening, which allows kingdoms to expand by either conquest or strategic alliance. This is where we're seeing Ahab. Instead of defeating Ben-Hadad, he kind of rationalizes that accepting him as an ally to establish a kind of a free trade zone, a free trade agreement into Damascus only benefits him because that's going to open up some road for him to further trade with the with the Fertile Crescent and into Mesopotamia and even farther down the line. So it's, it's an opportunity to seek greater wealth. And this is what God had prohibited, right, uh, for Israel to be doing. They were to be a, a spiritual witness. And so this is um, what Ahab is seeking as greater economic trans-Assyrian integration. Africa also was an important uh, source of wealth because of its uh, rich resources, uh, leading to, you know, Africa showing one of the first major largest empires of its kind in the world. And God told Israel, the kings, not to go back there specifically uh, in relation to gathering horses or wives. And to learn more about what's going on in this period, 1900 to 900 BC, I'd like to recommend uh, just as a simple reader at background. Now, it's not authoritative, but it is a good compilation of the different empires arising at this time. And that's at the Wikipedia link that you see on the slide there under the search Middle Eastern Empires. But as we go on to look at this, uh, how does this relate to Israel? Well, persecution of God's people is happening as paganism infiltrates the land, not only of God's people, but the prophets in particular. Idolatry led to human slavery, denigration, abuse, exploit exploitation of the most vulnerable people, women and children. And anytime you see a rapid kind of um, expansion going on of human endeavor or nation building, you're inevitably going to see uh, slavery of entire people groups resulting in uh, dehumanizing captivity that suppresses the intrinsic value that God has created in the, uh, the human person. And that is the image of God for which we were created. We were created in the image of God to worship God. And then also, uh, because we're created in the image of God, we're co-laborers and we're co-creators with him, stewarding his creation. But uh, the trends in, in, in these false idolatry worship stunts human endeavoring, human creativity, and human flourishing into all areas of created efforts of human learning and discovery, leading to glorifying and rejoicing and celebrating with God. So here's a, a picture. If you can see the slide, uh, some of you on the audio podcast might not be able to see this, but I have three major 
uh, empires that are active uh, shortly before and then after these times, the first of which is the Hittite Empire, and then later on around 7 to 600 BC, leading into Assyrian Empire, to which the uh, nation of Israel as exiled into and then after then about 500 bc 600 bc is the chaldean empire which is known as the neo babylonian empire and the maps for these so the hittite empire uh, has a very ancient origin and so the hittites settled in asia minor and built a vast kind of a territory around Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, and descended all the way down to the borders of Sire and Titan, which was ruled by the Phoenicians. In Genesis, the Hittites, uh, we hear about Ephron, who sold Abraham uh, the cave of Machpelah in Hebron for use as a family tomb. Yes, Ephron, who owned that land, was a Hittite. Esau also married wives from the Hittites. And so the Hittites are very much in kind of um, in, in active inter interaction with the Israelites at this time and even married into the uh, Israelites. The Phoenicians uh, were more of a maritime empire. They built their empire th throughout the Mediterranean Sea into North Africa, parts of Spain, Italy, Crete. Mean, uh, the Minoan culture has influences from the Phoenicians. And then you can see... Uh, archaeological evidence to show how much of their advancement resided with the building out of boats, uh, trade ships um, early on as they were bringing back knowledge and goods from all of these different locations. This current slide shows you um, the Assyrian Empire and the Chaldean Empire up close. What we notice about the Assyrians as they're kind of growing into their own at this stage is that they're a fierce warrior society. They used war chariots. They had foot soldiers, cavalrys, and very advanced iron weapons. They also had an efficient government system using local leaders. They improved on um, the existing roads and provided security for those roads to kind of actively, proactively protect trade. Because, as you may recall, these roads were pretty much uh, kind of unprotected and people, because of security issues, always traveled in caravans with other groups for being attacked by marauders and bandits at the time, which was quite a, a frequent occurrence. And so it, it's not like the highways of today, for sure. So these roads and the protection of their of uh, kind of facilitated out uh, expansion of trade and the ability to do commerce uh, intercity wise then you have um kind of archaeological findings that show that the assyrian capital of nineveh was quite advanced they had a library constructed during the reign of king ashurbanipal uh, in 600 600 uh, 700 bc the precursor they were the precursors of the babylonian the neo-babylonian empire at about roughly 700 bc with the assyrian decline and that's when you we hear about Nebuchadnezzar and uh, his uh, successors thereafter. So we know the importance of the Fertile Crescent, right? And the Jewish people at this time, the Israelites, were being uh, strengthened as God's people. God was attempting to use them as a source of divine truth. We know that God was purposely kind of cultivating and nurturing them to be a people after himself. And important to this is that, you know, I, I show you this, many of you might be familiar with this Maslow hierarchy of needs. 
And it's based on this uh, Maslow's uh, research that shows that people have basically uh, basic needs that need to be fulfilled. And those basic needs have to do with the physiological kind of hygienic needs for food, water, warmth, a shelter. Uh, above that would be safety needs, security, safety, sense of place, uh, groundedness. Then once you have those fulfilled, those basic things of food, shelter, and clothing, and safety, you start to, people start to look for other things like belonging, community, sense of love, friendships. And then once those are met uh, through the community that one finds, um, they start to kind of wanting to fulfill esteem needs, uh, prestige, feeling of accomplishment, achievement, uh, position, and title. And then once those are met, the highest needs uh, that come from uh, economic development and also just an advancement, living in an advanced society means that people have ample time now to uh, look after self-actualization needs, which is to understand life purpose, to study, to read, to look through uh, arts and culture, to find a sense of identity and self. And I hope you'll just bear with me as I go off on this uh, kind of explanation. I just wanted to use this as a, uh, a schematic and a framework for helping you understand why idolatry has a big impact. As you can see from this next slide, this is Israel's witness that they were supposed to have against these needs that we have in the ways in which we understand ourselves, our purpose in the world. God specifically told them, if you look in the bottom portion, when it comes to the basic needs, that he was going to be their supply, that he was going to be their provider. Jehovah Jireh means God, who is Lord, who is our provider. And he specifically told them, do not accumulate gold or silver or have many horses or count your military men, because I don't want you to rely on your human efforts to determine whether or not you were qualified or capable of being a nation, God was going to make the land flow with milk and honey and be the sole variable for their success in the world. He promised that. That was part of his covenant with them. And then above them, the psychological needs, whether for belonging or friendship or esteem, that was also going to come from an identity rested in him. And their calling for these things was based on this idea that they were to dig into God's call for them to be stewards, stewards to God's people, leading them by example, and working toward restoration, renewal, having a salvific effect on each other and the nations around them. But then, of course, this all starts from the top down, and it starts with this idea that they were supposed to be, as God called them to be, a nation of priests before God, capable teachers who can teach the world about God and his way through his, his ways through his word, his revealed word. And so this was supposed to be Israel's witness, as you can see. But so you can see that this was supposed to have a top-down uh, effect where their grounded identity within God influenced how they were supposed to work with one another and their impact on others, and then also how they were supposed to act and move into their daily activities for survival, for uh, basic needs. Everything was rested in Him. But then what you have within pagan nations is uh, something that's very different. And it turns the whole thing upside down, where God is no longer in the picture. He's not a variable in the equation. So at the bottom, what you see are things have their highest value. Material things become gods. Territorial conquest, alliances, empires, gold and silver become high priorities. 
And with those things come this urgency uh, kind of need individually to find their psychological needs met by increasing personal recognition, personal gain of power, the use of manipulation or power effects to rule by conquest, and then also uh, an inability to listen to God, an inability and a closed heart to God's prophets, and a kind of psychopathy that rests in, which is a psychopathy means uh, the inability to feel, the inability to have a spiritual sense of sensitivity. Then at the very top, you have narcissism. What happens is one becomes God, Self becomes deity. And we know that from ancient times, kings uh, promoted the idea that they themselves were demigods or they themselves were gods, as we saw in Egypt and in other empires as well. Uh, life purposes get defined by this idolatry of the king or the idols that surround them, which leads to moral perversion and distortion, right? Because everything gets rooted into, all of life gets understood by what's best for oneself. It originates with flawed human beings. So as a result, a, a kind of vicious cycle starts to uh, develop where the king himself and the people under him start to rule without a shepherd mind, right? The Lord was very interested in people who knew how to see uh, the people as a shepherd might see his flocks, one who had a deep spiritual stewarding heart after God's heart. Instead, uh, everybody is out for themselves. Everybody is very survivalistic, accumulation of goods. The man who dies with the most toys wins, survival of the fittest, the big dominates over the weak. And this kind of vicious circle where more territories, the use of slaves to expand out and build out infrastructure for one's empire. And it all goes back to personal glory and not the rollout of God's glory and the recognition of God's glory in the world. We had to have to go back to what Exodus had said in um, when God spoke to Moses and says, now, if you will in Deed, obey my voice and keep my commandments. You will be my treasured possession out of all the nations. For the whole earth is mine, and unto me you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. And then he says later through the prophet Isaiah, he says, You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. And so they were supposed to be a holy people, not defined by what the world loves, wealth, military power, glamorous cultural and social advancements, none of that. They were supposed to be a nation of priests. They were supposed to be teachers who taught the world proper theology, the knowledge of God, and proper worship, the joy and celebration with God through the dissemination of God's word, God's heart, God's design. Nations were, you know, at one point during Solomon's reign, they came to him and saw his wisdom, learning, and understanding while he was living under God's word, which enhanced his management and development of Israel as a testimony to the nations and to really show to them, you know, God knows what he's doing. But then he, he fell with his uh, many, many wives, pagan wives that he married. So they were now we anticipate, um, because of the failed and perfect kings, we anticipate for us a better king. And the scriptures point to that better king who teaches us that the true and perfect king is the one that God supplies through our Lord Jesus. And so 
what I want to remind you of is that perfect king. It says, Leviticus, you will inherit the land I will give you to possess it, a land that flows with milk and honey. And I'm the Lord your God, which has separated you from other people. And that's a verse that we can, you know, be thinking about it for ourselves too as God's chosen people in Christ. 1 Peter 2.9 kind of reaffirms this. He says, you are a chosen people, a holy royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And in Revelations, we see the future telling of this, the fruition of God's kingdom when in Revelations 5.10, there is a song sung by the four great creatures and the 24 elders who fell down before the Lamb. And it says, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign upon the earth. So let's take a quick look at what uh, Jehoshaphat did in his early reign. It says here in chapter 17 that he sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than practices of Israel. So the Lord established his kingdom under his control, and he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. And in the third reign, he sent officials to teach the towns of Judah. They taught throughout Judah, taking with them the book of the law of the Lord, and they went around to all the towns of Judah to teach the people. And then practically, he fortified uh, the garrisons of Judah. He stationed troops in all the fortified cities of Judah, and then built new forts and storage cities, large supply cities, and he kept kept experienced fighting men in Jerusalem. And I think if you count the numbers in chapter 17, there were over a million men. Jerusalem would have been larger in population, I guess, at the time, bigger than San Francisco if they were all there at one time. But I, I think that was not the case. There might have been a rotation uh, going on. Um, what, you know, it just practically, practically, it doesn't make sense to have all that men <laughs> congregated around in one city. But that's just my best guess. So how did God bless him? Well, the fear of the Lord fell on the kingdoms of the lands around Judah, and they did not make war with Jehoshaphat. Instead, uh, Philistines brought Jehoshaphat gifts and silver as tribute. Arabs, they brought thousands of flocks of goats and rams. Uh, but where did Jehoshaphat's uh, kind of propensity to forge alliances, break them down. Well, he brought a woman brought up in the ways of idolatry into the land, and that's the daughter of Ahab, um, brought up by Jezebel. Uh, married her to his eldest son, who would inherit the throne. Uh, Jehoram, his firstborn son, ended up becoming one of the most wicked kings of Israel. At age 32, he had murdered all six of his younger brothers to cement his power. We're going to learn more about this later on. We learn from Solomon uh, and Ahab and others how powerful the influence of wives are to the kings and the king's attitude and hearts, uh, which results consequently to kind of the um, the spiritual and moral uh, condition of the entire nation. The alliance ties their future together. Alliances and un being unequally yoked ties their minds and their hips together. It forces Jehoshaphat to sacrifice. He says he'd gladly offer his military warriors and his uh, whatever he owns is for Ahab to use uh, without dispute. And, you know, it causes him to enter into battle in a battle that is not approved by God. So what we he see here when we're reading this is that God is now looking at these kings, not based on the king's chroniclers to make an assessment of their successes or their failures, it is from the perspective of uh, 
holy men of God who understand it from God's perspective. And you think about your own life, how it's going to be framed or understood. It's a reminder that our lives will not be waged, weighed by super, superfluous works, which we or the world thinks is important, but by the critical matters of our reliance and trust in God and our obedience, fighting against idolatry and the lies of the world, and being sensitive to communicate with God for His direction through all difficult moments of our lives. So some applications for us to be thinking about is, if any account of your life was written up as a brief, as a chapter in scripture, what might the prophetic writer say about your own life? What might somebody say uh, or write about you if you were a character, uh, a king or a follower uh, being described in the book of Kings or Chronicles? Question two, do you find that like some of the kings, uh, as they go halfway, to tearing down Asherah poles or not really doing much to eliminate high places, so to speak, that you have not successfully torn down those places of idolatry in your life and have kind of kind of squeaked by with compromises uh, and secret sins that um, as long as nobody else is looking or maybe you've gone too comfortable in keeping them hidden, how has partially doing what is needful and right affected the quality of your walk and faith with the Lord? And three, why do we go halfway and compromise our commitment to the Lord in matters where it really counts? You know, this is what happened to Jehoshaphat. He was a good king, and he got, but he got lured away, and perhaps he was intimidated by just kind of the glamorous uh, advancement of the nations around them as they were quickly expanding and growing. And he decided to play along, develop alliances that he saw as right in his own eyes. Well, as you know from having done the study this week, uh, King Jehoshaphat barely got away, barely, and the Lord rescued him, And uh, but King Ahab was killed. Jehoshaphat, however, was able to return back to Jerusalem, and he was rebuked by Jehu, the seer, the son of Hanani, who we met earlier. Uh, Jehu said, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is upon you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have ridden the land of the Asherah poles and have set your heart on seeking God. And so uh, he is spared from any kind of judgment. But later on, we do see that this instance of compromise with Ahab lays vulnerability to his kingdom and gives a signal to those around him for further attack. And so very soon we realize that he is in for a battle that he's not prepared for. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Meunites come to make war on Jehoshaphat. And alarmed, Jehoshaphat, it says, resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he proclaimed the fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. And they came from every town of Judah, and they prayed. And to pray is to remember our dependence on God. Specific clarity with, with Jehoshaphat pointed out God's promises and identity is really spectacular here. You know, there are five clear parts to his prayer. And you can see those parts here in my slide. For I won't go through the verses because uh, they are before you, but I want to point out the five things. Their identification of God as supreme and sovereign over all things. Two, they acknowledge God's work in their lives for bringing them there. So it's a kind of appreciation and thanksgiving. Three, it's reminding God of their dependence on Him for everything, even their very future and destiny, which were 
entirely in his plans and in his hands. Their hope is in the future of his design and his plans. They ex express that explicitly. And then they explain the problem and confess their helplessness in this dire situation and their dependence on God alone. And then lastly, they confess their utter helplessness and their expectation for God's rescue. And so it's interesting, based on this, uh, we, we can take some uh, key learning points away in about how we ought to pray before God. Uh, they're wrapped up in the five points that I mentioned here in this slide. I should also be praying in this way. One, to be acknowledging God's power and sovereignty, complete authority over everything, including my life. Two, acknowledging God's love through his everlasting covenant promises to his people. And then even going into how he's already done that in various instances of my life, throughout my life. It's colored everything about who I am. Three, acknowledging our utter dependence on God. God wants to know that we depend on him. And expressing that as part of activating uh, our ourselves into it, into that reality. Four, confession of our problem and helplessness. You know, it's important to define the problem. If we don't understand the problem ourselves, then we don't really know what God is. We are hoping that God will rescue us from. Expression of and confession of the problem and our helplessness in it is important. And then lastly, five, we confess our expectation to be rescued by him as our faithful deliverer by his faithfulness. We, we speak into God's deliverance because that is his name. And so what happens in chapter 20 is a really important uh, and delightful section of the story uh, here about Jehoshaphat. Jaziel, a prophet, tells Jehoshaphat that he doesn't have anything to fear. He tells them that the Lord is going to be with him. It says, you will not have to fight this battle. Take your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bows down with his face to the ground, and all the people worship. And so as they're leaving early morning for the desert of Tekoa, where they were supposed to see this vast army, they set out with a praise band. And that's as best as they can do. I mean, because they know that the battle is the Lord's, and they don't try to make anything more of it than they ought to, as declared by the prophet. They believe what the prophet says. And when they get there, they find that previous day, the armies of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir had all but killed each other, and they were lying strewn all over the desert floor. And they spent, the Jehoshaphat and his men spent three days plundering and gathering up the equipment and clothing and articles of value to take away. And on the fourth day, they praised the Lord again, and they erupted into song and harp and, and rejoicing. And fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard how the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So this is an amazing testimony of God's work in their lives. When they repented and when they sought the Lord and they were fasting and praying and seeking the Lord and uttering words of reliance on Him. And I just want to encourage you to take note of His prayer that we ought to have a posture in mind, spirit, and body to commit ourselves to the Lord, not as a protocol, nor, nor as something routine that we do, but wholeheartedly and genuinely. And that is what the Lord is seeking from us, His church. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you, Father, that in our prayers you call us not to be afraid, not to be discouraged, that the battle is ours in Christ, and you ask us to take our positions and to go and see what you will do entirely by your great power. And you have secured the victory and the deliverance for us. Help us not to be afraid in these times of darkness. Help us not to be discouraged. Make our foreheads like a rock, Father, and help us to go forth in the victory that you have given to us to make a difference in the world. In Jesus' name and by your power and your strength and wisdom, we pray, Lord, that you would be with us and help us to be with you, to submit ourselves to you in all of our affairs. We commit our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. to me.